I don't see DEI as necessarily a way of, again, avoiding her, avoiding pain, but giving ourselves tools so that we can adapt to deal with it, right? So that's resilience right there. And the way that we become more resilient as a society is to help all of the individuals of that society to become resilient. Welcome to an outstanding and fun season four of the Hardwood Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Thomas Rashad Eason, and I think you're going to enjoy this season and the episodes that we have forthcoming. Thank you. All right, everyone, we are back for another episode of the Hardwood Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Thomas Rashad Easley, a.k.a. the Hip Hop Forester, a.k.a. Rashad Ease, a.k.a. Doc E. And today, this is going to be a fun episode in particular for you to listen to because I'm actually talking to a friend. But I'm talking to a friend who is a, a really outstanding professional who um, has actually had conversations with me and fortunately has had me on his platform. And so I said, I need I need the world to see, you know, this individual who's now become a friend to come. And so you all can see how I think good relationships are formed and how brilliance can actually be shared. And so today I'm talking with my friend Enrico E. Manalo, who works with All Aces Incorporated, who's based out of Massachusetts, uh, I think. Uh, but he made OK, I got a smile. So, OK, yes. Um, what we're doing today um, Enrico and I have had a lot of great conversations, one about diversity, but really about developing friendships through good humanity. That's really what we've mm -hmm. been doing. And so today, I just I want you all to get some of what I always get when I talk to him, which is the fun part of just kind of sitting back and listening. But you get to watch me ask him questions by doing it the way we do it on Hartwood, which is like this. My friend Enrico, how you doing today? I'm doing great, Thomas. And wow, what an introduction. I mean, thank you so much. And yeah, certainly, I know that uh, in the course of the pandemic, a lot of people have been feeling kind of disconnected and kind of unsure about the tools that we have at our disposal to kind of connect with other people. But uh, as you kind of landed on, one of the things that's really kept me engaged in this work is very much connecting with other people, forming those friendships, creating relationships. And I think as so many of us, uh, maybe it's not exactly what we've been taught, but what we've come to learn is that relationships really are everything. And that's nothing to be sneered at, right? Mm. Yes. No, it's not. See, uh, see everyone. See, look at that. I'm, see, I'm, I'm, I'm grinning. It is. See, here we go. Relationships are everything. So my friend, you know, um, and I want to thank you for even, you know, starting, you know, us off by reaching out and then a start, you know, like months ago, because you've helped me to kind of get centered and anchored and, you know, and today I'm actually going to do something with you that I haven't done before. I'm actually going to learn more about you a different way. So I'm actually going to ask you the things that I've wanted to ask. <laughs> and, I want to know a little bit more about your journey to okay. all aces. I'd like to know more about, you know, you and like what, what like got you there. Now, before you answer that, the reason I say we're going to do it the way we do it here on Hartwood is because I always like to demonstrate what I'm going to ask by doing it like this. So before I got to Yale, bro, I uh, was at NC State. Uh, before I got to NC State, I worked in urban forestry, NC State University in Raleigh, mm -hmm. North Carolina. I worked in urban forestry. And before that, I worked with the Forest Service. And um, I, I've had a great career of being in places, professional environments where I'm either the only one who looks like me or one of the few. And when I went from the Forest Service 
to urban forestry, to NC State, and then at Yale, which is what led, to, you know, like which contributed to to you and I meeting. I uh, noticed that it, it I needed to really understand more then push to be understood. That's kind of like what I was kind of going into at first. But when I started to understand, I started to learn more about people, learn more about myself. And then I think that that is what led me to being comfortable being at an NC State University, being at a Yale and now being an entrepreneur doing this work. So here, the question I have is, will you share with me your journey? You know, how you got to all aces, you know, and just the things that have impacted you. Absolutely. And thank you for demonstrating because I wasn't sure how far back you wanted me to go, but uh, it, it definitely does start with education. So uh, it, it was a long meandering path. And I suppose that the uh, kind of, well, let me, let me kind of qualify what I'm about to say with this. Um, so since I, I joined uh, the All Aces team, one of the things that we've been talking about a lot is the racial equity journey. So I, I kind of think about my journey to all aces in the broader context of that. And uh, one of the things that we often engage with our clients on as a way to kind of break the ice and to get them to reflect is what, what was your first kind of awareness of race? And, you know, this sometimes this uh, is very easy for people to answer. And sometimes it's, it's really not. Uh, for me, the first time I really became aware that I was a racialized person, that I was somehow categorized as different from the other people that I was encountering. I was about five years old. So I, I grew up in New Hampshire. I know that this is a, a podcast and people can't see me, but I am, uh, my parents are from the Philippines. And uh, at the time, so this is uh, the, the late 80s, early 90s, there were not like you talked about being an only one, there were not other children that really looked like me in my small town in New Hampshire. Uh, there were a couple other Asian students, but even early on, I, I was made aware that I was the only Filipino, right? And it's a little bit frustrating as a child to try to explain who you are and uh, where you come from and why you are the way you are. Uh, especially right. at five years old and have be met with people saying the Philippines, what's that? <laughs> you know, it's like, <laughs> I, I don't even know. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm five. I've never been there. I have no idea. But what happened was uh, a neighbor's mother kind of asked where I was from and she did that thing. No, where are you really from? So, you know, I said, well, I was born in Manhattan, Kansas, and that's as far as I know. So we lived there, but that was not something that she accepted. So I'm not exactly sure what happened in my child's mind. But what I said was, okay, well, we are Eskimos. And previously we lived in Alaska in an igloo. And she accepted that. And so I remember later in the day, my father kind of came back to me and asked me, why did you say that we are Eskimos and that we lived in an igloo? And of course, now I know in 2021 that, you know, we're not supposed to refer to Inuit peoples as Eskimos. But at the time, I didn't know that. And you know, as a kid will do, I just kind of shrugged my shoulders and went on my way after my dad told me not to lie. And, uh, you know, I've had about 30 years to reflect on that. And what I think happened is seeing that somebody didn't really accept what I was saying, I realized that there was an opportunity there to change the narrative, even if I didn't have the words to say that. So that was kind of my first, my first real awareness that I was somehow different. And it took me years, it took me decades to get to a place where I could really deal with that in a positive and proactive way. 
And, mm-hmm. you know, maybe this is implicit, but I spent a lot of my life being pretty angry and not understanding why I was different or what I could do about it, what it even meant. Right. And as I've continued on my racial equity journey, I've noticed that, uh, and it seems so obvious now, but this was not an experience that is unique to me. And it's an experience that far too many people are going through all the time. So kind of fast forward to as I'm trying to find myself through education and everything, I first attended Emerson College, which is in downtown Boston, as a writing student, as a creative writing student. The program there is called uh, Writing Literature and Publishing. And it really wasn't until I uh, was up there crossing the stage, shaking the president's hand, that I kind of had this realization like, oh, yeah, there's no such thing as a poetry job. So I've got to figure out a way to become gainfully employed. And uh, at my dad's suggestion, I uh, I started looking into language teaching, right? I I love traveling because uh, for me, the association is that I get to see people that I don't always see, like I'm just not able to. So uh, to kind of contextualize that, I didn't really see uh, most of my family until I was about seven years old. And, you know, my, my, my mom likes to tell that story of uh, me going onto the airplane and seeing it full of other Filipino people and just being shocked, right? Like, mm-hmm. oh, there are other people like me in the world. Mm-hmm. And so I went to college. I, I got my certification to teach EFL, which is English as a foreign language. I found a job in Vietnam. Some of the other jobs that I was offered were actually in Taiwan and South Korea. Although I was aware at the time that there were certain prejudices against Filipino people in both South Korea and in Taiwan. Uh, Plus in Vietnam, I got to live by the beach and get paid a little bit more. So uh, I went to Vietnam for a while. And uh, eventually through my language teaching, what I kind of realized is more than teaching language. And again, language was really just kind of my springboard because of my love of writing and poetry. And so uh, what I found that I was actually doing more than teaching grammar and, uh, you know, vocabulary, syntax, usage, whatever, was I was really helping people to navigate those cultural differences between Vietnam and the U.S. or the broader and Western sphere, whatever you want to call it. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that's that's what really kind of got me excited because I had had to navigate a lot of that as a child myself. Right. So at home, it was a Filipino household, Filipino rules, Filipino expectations. And beyond those doors, it was all American stuff all the time. And I do remember that there was a point where my parents were asking, like, why can't you just be a good Filipino boy? And I had no idea how to do that, right? I had some whispers of it, but it wasn't my lived reality, right? And uh, it was to the point, uh, so I'm not sure if people are aware, but in the late 80s, the suggestion around uh, bilingualism in children was do not teach your children to be bilingual because it will be a problem in school. And so, uh, (sighs) you know, even interacting with my family, there was this this layer of them having to switch into English for my benefit because they knew that I couldn't understand everything that they were saying. Mm-hmm. So this this all came in very useful in in helping my students trying to 
understand what kind of cues to pick up on and uh, how to read certain situations, how they could kind of test their hypothesis and see if uh, that was the direction that the interaction was was leading them in. And, uh, you know, on returning back from Vietnam, I, I kind of made up my mind that I wanted to go to grad school, but wasn't sure what I thought I would go into law. Uh, that's something that uh, a number of other people in my family have done. And as I was doing that, a very close family friend, uh, Dr. Kenneth Soule, who uh, was one of the students of a, a guy named Morton Deutsch, who was over at Teachers College at Columbia and started the uh, Conflict Resolution Center there. So he kind of pulled me aside and said, hey, uh, I have known a lot of lawyers. I've known you since you were very young. My perception is that going into law is something that can really kind of crush a person. And so I'd like you to just kind of come to, to my workshops and see what I do. And, you know, if, if you're seeing that there is some kind of resonance there, you know, maybe we can we can talk more and, and figure something out. So uh, I went into those workshops and I was what I was seeing is that really it's a uh, conflict resolution gets at the heart of what I wanted to do with law, which is to help people directly. Right. And uh, as I've kind of encountered more lawyers and gotten to know them, talk to them more deeply. Uh, one of the things that I've noticed is that there's a real dissatisfaction often because it's very profit driven. Right. If maybe, right. you know, not profit, uh, that's not the word that they would use, but if you're talking about everything in terms of numbers and fixing problems with the amount of money you receive for your suffering, well, that's not really what I'm interested in, right? Uh, we've been talking a little bit about that connection piece, right? It's great to have money in the bank account. I wish I had more, of course. However, there's a real dopamine hit when you can see that you've actually helped somebody where you've had an actual impact. And that's incredibly satisfying on multiple levels. It's incredibly valuable, but more than that, it helps us to see how we can be making change or what our capacity is to uh, support change. And uh, that's really helpful in terms of growth. So uh, in you know, my own kind of change journey, I went away from those workshops uh, you know, and started looking around at different grad programs. Uh, Kenneth suggested that I talk to some people over at uh, UMass Boston, who he had worked with in the past. And uh, I ended up attending the conflict resolution program at the University of Massachusetts, Boston. And so in the course of that work, I really focused on organizational conflict. And as I was trying to figure out what I wanted to uh, do as far as my master's project or, or thesis, I wasn't sure if I wanted to continue on to get a PhD. So I opted for that thesis option. And uh, originally what I wanted to, to focus on was belonging, right? So I think uh, hopefully the, the listener can see that through line of uh, being the, one of the only ones uh, where I was growing up and not really understanding myself or anything like that to wanting to learn more about belonging and, and conflict. And at the time, the literature on belonging was very, very sparse. Although uh, since then, I've encountered a number of practitioners, for example, 
a woman named Sarah Judd Welch, who runs a, a, a company called Sharehold. And their whole thing is about belonging. And, uh, you know, done some excellent, excellent research on that that I wish I had had uh, in grad school. But frankly, then I probably would not have gotten so interested in diversity. Right. So uh, I started really learning a lot more about diversity, where our ideas have come from, the kind of conflicts involved. And so that's what my, my thesis research was on, specifically around how conflict is handled after a successful DEI training. And I had this whole definition of what that would mean, uh, as well as, uh, you know, the kind of companies that I was looking at. So I actually ended up looking at a union because uh, the motive was really about, uh, about change rather than trying to drive DEI forward as a means of creating greater income or profits. And uh, I will say that along the way, uh, in writing that thesis, uh, I, I got really in the weeds, I dived really deep. And now if there are any UMass Boston students uh, listening in the conflict resolution program, I am uh, the person responsible for the page limit. So there's now a, a 60 page page limit. <laughs> Mine came out to <laughs> about 185 pages, I believe. <laughs> and uh, yeah, a you. Mean, I, <laughs> I've been getting a lot of mileage out of it. <laughs> But yeah, so it was, it was through that, uh, that program I was in in grad school. Afterwards, I was starting to look around for jobs and, uh, and fellowships and things. So I applied to a couple over at the, uh, the mayor's office in Boston. And there was an incredibly supportive woman there named uh, Kimberly Lucas, who is no longer uh, there. But uh, she noticed my applications to, to both of the fellowships that I applied for. And she really encouraged me to uh, apply for that second one. And then when that one didn't work out, she was kind enough to put me in touch with my current boss, uh, Dr. S. Atia Martin, CEM. So if that name sounds somewhat familiar to people who are familiar with the city of Boston, she was actually the first chief resilience officer for the city appointed by the mayor, and uh, she was also the emergency manager for the city of Boston during the Boston Marathon bombings. And yeah, if anybody's kind of looking her up right now, they will notice that she has a, a really kind of extensive and interesting work history. You know, she's worked for the FBI, for Homeland Security, for, uh, you know, all these different places. And um you know, after doing some in informational interviewing with Dr. Martin, uh, she really kind of liked my conflict lens and uh, the work that I had put into my thesis and the ideas that I had uh, that I was developing for my own workshops and things. And so uh, I joined the team in December of 2019. So uh, yeah, since then, I've been the chief of learner success, which means that I do a lot of things on our online learning community, intentionallyact.com. And uh, that kind of, uh, in, in my duties as the chief of learner success, we also had to figure out a way to engage with our following and our peers. And so that's where our show, Intentionally Act Live, which was originally called All Aces on Air, came from. And that's how uh, you and I got connected. Wow. Oh, my goodness. Okay. That's so rich. <laughs> that is so rich. Okay. Everything that you shared, I was sitting here listening uh, actively listening, but, you know, but also taking notes at the same time. I mean, you know, um, 
you know, the, the, whole, the, whole, the whole story is fascinating, you know, but talking about what happened at five in New Hampshire, it reminds me of what happened to me at four in Birmingham, Alabama, you know, with you, you know, talking about how, you know, like talking about your family and how it was, you know, now to seven till you really saw a number of people and, and, you know, and then understanding the different things that were going on in our country in the eighties and nineties. Uh, you know, around language and how people mm-hmm. were not encouraged to speak their native language or to raise their children speaking their their native language. You know, so I really hope that everyone listening, you know, understands that, um, you know, how can I put it? I remember when I first got involved in DEI training and I met uh, with uh, a group that was from Puerto Rico. Mm. So I had a group that was from Puerto Rico and then I had a group of students who were Puerto Rican. Okay. And you would have, and so when they came together, I noticed that there was somewhat of an arrogance with the people who spoke Spanish and somewhat of this humility with the people who didn't, you know, and then there was this like, and then it seemed like there was sometimes, and I, and this is not me trying to talk about another community. This is me just sharing, like when I was there bringing people together here, I am thinking, you know, I'm doing something good because my students, you know, help put this program together here. We're bringing folks in, you know, from the Island, which is a part of the U S mm. And I did, but because I'm not Latinx, you know, I didn't know about these other dynamics that would happen. So I get to sit there and kind of watch it and just see what's happening between these, these two groups. And for the people who are from Puerto Rico, what they uh, didn't, you know, at the time have is, you know, like the challenge that these students had growing up here on what some say the mainland, I'm just going to say growing here on Turtle Island growing up here that they didn't get the access that they did. So it went from the arrogance to a concern. Like, and it was fast, like, oh, wow, you know, because, you know, don't get me wrong, I think that everyone should, it'd be great if you knew your native language, but when you don't grow up in your native land, mm. you know, and, and and of course that, it depends on how we describe that, because you and me both born here, so this is my native land, right? you know what I'm saying, I was born here, you were born here, but then there may be some from our family, even like me from my indigenous side of my family, who may say, oh, you should know this language and you're not doing this and i'm like okay well what are the other dynamics that have contributed to why i don't know right you know to why my family maybe didn't teach me something why they probably didn't think it was safe to teach me something you know Mm -hmm. so it's not just about oh having the courage to do something it's about understanding these other pieces and so i was as i was taking notes and listening to everything that you were saying i was just that that that, that was really you know really sitting with me and then when you you know talked about going to vietnam teaching you know you know english as a foreign language but the but the dynamics of even dealing with other asian countries and seeing that and just seeing like how the impact of the U.S. around the world is different, you know, in yeah. different parts of, of the world and not necessarily always good. <laughs> Very so, true. You know, and so you're, you know, so, so, so you're sharing that. But then what I really take from, 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 from this, though, is that you figured out that you had to do some things on your own. Oh, so yes. to me, it seems like you took the responsibility and all right, I'm getting ready to graduate college. I love when you said, oh, I can't get a poetry job or something <laughs> like that. I'm like. <laughs> I remember graduating with a forestry, you know, here, here's what's fascinating. I went to school for forestry, but I loved hip hop and I mm. love, and I love, and I love poetry. I mean, I, I'm a poet. Yeah. I'm, I'm a lyricist, you know, I make music. Well, I'm a musician. And when I graduated with that degree, I, I remember going, how am I going to do hip hop with this? <laughs> I just remember that. How am I going to do hip hop with this? So I just, I appreciate what you were sharing, you know, about not a poetry job. And then you figured out what you needed to do. And then, 
each experience led to the next experience. And mm-hmm. I really hope that the listeners hear that is that to me, like, I feel like I'm hearing someone who's echoing my spirit because it was like you went and learned how to do what you needed to do to be where you needed to be. Yes. And I think that a lot of people, I, I think sometimes struggle with that. Like, uh, you know, like go, being able to it's like turn on that that other muscle, maybe it's survival, you know, may, I, I don't know, but you did what you had to do. It reminds me so much of mine. But I'll close on this to go to the next question, which is when you said a real dopamine hit that you can get is when you've helped a person <laughs> and you never lost that. Right. It was about connecting with people. You never lost that. You know, even from your upbringing, the language being a potential barrier. To me, I, I feel like I kind of see that going into what you went into into school with and for too, and then going, I have to make a change, but not lose the spirit of it. And I just mm-hmm. hope that people, because I think that, that to me, I'm what I'm getting from from your story is don't give up your strength, don't give up your power, work to understand other people, value yourself as much as possible, you know, but leave yourself open uh, to learn and grow, but protect yourself at the same time so that so the person who you are, you know that. You know, well, am you I kind of cash. saying, is that okay? Yeah, that- no, that's fantastic. And you know what? Uh, I think as I'm hearing you kind of collect that all together for the listeners and me too, is uh, I think it's also important to say that uh, I didn't always feel that way when I was inside it. And you mentioned like maybe some of that is survival and absolutely true. I mean, um, I, I think it's hard to know that you're doing the right thing. And that's that's what a lot of people want. They want some of that certainty. Uh, but, you know, uh, I mentioned that my parents didn't teach me Tagalog, the, the Filipino language, because of uh, certain ideas uh, that were present in the 80s. But they were doing the best that they could in their context. Right. So sometimes doing the right thing at the time, it doesn't necessarily mean that we won't have to revisit that down the line and down the line uh, in retrospect, that might not have been the right thing to do. But the point is, we couldn't know. So, yeah, I, uh, I definitely hear you. And uh, I think for me, having a kind of a sense of who I wanted to be or what I wanted things to look like has been very helpful in as I've kind of tried to find my way through through life. So I, I just hope that people listening, if they're kind of, you know, listening to us talk uh, yes. or, you know, they're not feeling like, oh, OK, that's that's somebody else. That's not me. Right. It's not, right. Yes. I completely understand. And I hope people really take that 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 piece. When you said about money, I like to have more than the bank. But when you said that dopamine hit, I mean, <laughs> because to me, that is for, for Thomas, I think about success in that way. Mm. You know, it's, it's one thing for, for me to go, did I get paid doing this workshop, which I, I still have to do that because in some way and sometimes there's no margin, no mission. You know, it's hard to survive without that. But mm. the spirit of what I'm doing isn't even about the money. The spirit of what I'm doing is what happens when I'm there, when I leave there. Do people feel more confident in themselves? Do people feel like they can engage with DEIAJ? You know, things continue to change yeah. more. Do people feel like they can be in their place of work more? And so that's what I kind of look at success, because to me, that's the thing that can keep going, that can, you know, vibrate, you know, like throughout time and keep moving because we touch one another, we impact one another. So what I want to ask you, uh, you know, leader, you know, is could you describe being that you do this work with, with your online community, with your community period, you have the conflict resolution background, you have the language background, you have the, the art background. Can you describe for me? how you have been successful in your work or what success means to you. Absolutely. 
So let's start with that. Uh, what is success? Or let me see here. So successful in work and what does uh, success mean in DEI in general? Yeah. Sure. Yes. Okay. So uh, as far as being successful in my work, so my professional career started off as a teacher. And uh, Thomas, I don't know if you can relate to this, but in learning to draft lesson plans, there was that uh, idea of by the end of this lesson, the student will be able to, right? The objectives. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Yes. So uh, I don't know. Uh, internally, I'm not an incredibly organized person. So that that was really like helped to kind of focus me. Right. Okay. So in terms of my conflict work, I always approach it like that. OK, so people are coming to me with with certain issues that they're kind of stuck in. Right. So what is it that they want to be able to do by the end of our time together? And sometimes realizing that is kind of like, yes, it's easier for me to have my own ideas of success, but really success is something that we co-create with other people. There are very few situations where we are creating only our success, right? We exist in the world. Uh, you have a far deeper science background than I do. But one of the facts that I learned in my science courses that really has stuck with me is that every single object in the universe pulls gravitationally on all of the others. It's just, it's not super strong, right? Because it's so dispersed. It's and so thinking about that, it, you can kind of start to see like, okay, so if I am successful and that means more money, well, what does that mean for the people around me? Well, maybe that means that I can contribute to my local economy. Maybe I can do some things that will make uh, the people I love, they can make their lives a little easier. Maybe we can have access to things that we didn't have access before. So really kind of taking that broader view and kind of thinking about the impact of things has been very helpful. So to try to kind of collect this back, success in my work looks like when people kind of come away saying, okay, there's something that I can do about this. When they kind of lose that kind of uh, edge to their voice, like, I don't know what I'm doing. You know, I, I wouldn't go so far as to call it desperation, but there's a real frustration mm -hmm. that creeps into how we behave when we don't know what to do, right? Yes. And I think that, that that is a very powerful thing. And unfortunately, it's something that gets uh, leveraged against most of society a lot. So we see this in, uh, you know, some of my, many of my students from, uh, of course, we're not from the U.S. And they would ask me questions like, how is it legal for pharmaceutical companies to advertise medicines on TV for conditions that people don't even know that they have? <laughs> Right. It's like, because that's somebody else's vision of success. That's why. <laughs> oh, Enrico, you're touching some art. Right. <laughs> I'm, I'm not going to jump in here. Mm -mm. Oh, no, Lita, you, I, you, I want you to finish that. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> right. So um, I, I think also part of success is really learning about ourselves and what we want, but more than what we want, what we actually need, right? Like, yes, I, I want a huge house and all this stuff. But if I think about that reality, right? Uh, so I don't know if people know this, but in New Hampshire, property taxes are incredibly high. It's true, we don't have income taxes, but property taxes are very high to kind of compensate. So if you had a huge house 
in New Hampshire. Well, that's not the end of your problems, my friend. <laughs> that, that might just be the beginning. <laughs> you've got taxes, you've got upkeep, you know, you got to make sure that the roofs are okay and like everything's ready for winter. And so, you know, that really kind of got me thinking like, yeah, what does success mean? It can't mean freedom from misery and freedom from pain or hardship. That's just not realistic. Right. Wow. So in some sense, success really means being able to see ways that we can be continuing to adapt. Right. So, again, your background is in forestry. So, you know, a lot more about ecosystems and things than I do. But uh, when things don't adapt, that's a big problem. Right. So if we're talking yes. about climate change we're acting like oh everything is wrong around us as humans when really it's us that needs to adapt yes right and it's like oh things are getting hotter i better just keep doing the same thing that's like <laughs> if we walk around calling ourselves our species name thinking man right homo, homo sapiens homo sapiens. <laughs> why why don't we do more of the sapiens part <laughs> <laughs> Good question. I hope everyone is. It's, oh my good. I, I I got so many no. Oh my goodness. When when you shared that about the students and them asking that question about the the legality, it reminded me of my my father and I were walking around my home neighborhood one time, and my my father has you know some health challenges, and um you know but he's made he makes his decisions you know based on what he understands would be better for his health. So at the time he was drinking zero calorie sodas as a diabetic you see where i'm going with this okay yeah but he didn't know right you know and so i'm like walking with him and in his mind when we were well no in his face when we were talking he was like what do you mean you don't drink sodas and i'm like what do you mean you you actually think there's no calories in that you think there's no sugar in that man and then we went and we looked at it now this is not me minimizing my father this is to me talking about social pressure if you will and what goes on in our society i just just i'm just thinking about those students to question how can someone do this so then when he looked at it and looked at the ingredients he was just like he was like wait but the commercials say i said because that means there's somebody who expects you to read it huh and then we had to have a conversation about that i said isn't that interesting what's promoted is one thing but there is this expectation that you're going to read that because if you try to take action against them you won't win and he was like, whoa. So then that's when I thought, I love what you said about adapting. I think that to me, people who take those extra steps to learn the environment around them, take those extra steps to learn a place to work before you get there, that will better help you to adapt because you'll know some things are happening. Maybe you can see them coming before they come. And then you might be able to engage with other people because you know what they're looking at too. Like, I know why you're looking at that. I Because I knew why he did it. I was like, I know why you did it because... You thought that they were telling you the truth on that commercial, you know? And so I, so first I want to say thank you for that because people have to do their own work. Mm. To me, that's what DEI also means, yeah. doing your own work, you know? And, and, and not that I want to leave the question because you, 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 know, you talked about success and what it means. But man, when you say success was co-creating with other people, I'm like, <sighs> and when we think about DEI AJ now, it seems like that's one of the biggest problems that people are having. How right. to co-create with other people, how to support them being them mm -hmm. while I'm being me trying to create together, regardless of our hierarchy at work. You know, you said every single object when you talked about, you know, gravitational pull, everyone, he's telling you the truth. I love I love I love this part of science, too. Everything's pulling. 
but it's not as strong. I had this thing when I was a pastor, I used to preach and, you know, teach, you know, people in, in the church that I led. I was like, when two people come together, I said, if you notice, if you watch both of them, I was like, neither one of them stay like this. One's doing the pulling, the other one's doing the moving. <laughs> I said, it's usually what's happening. One's yeah. doing the pulling, one's doing the moving. Then this one does the pulling, then this one don't. So I said, that's why in relationships, there's a back and forth because mm. we're doing this. And I'll say, depending on if I'm moving in a way that this person is comfortable with, what starts to happen is we start and they, and they notice what start happening. Mm. We start moving closer. Yeah. Then when they start going this way, I start trying to my best to catch up with them because I want to be with them. And I said, what's so fascinating about this? That's it. That's intimacy. Mm-hmm. I say it could be between men and men, women and men, women and women, you know, you know, you know, trans. I mean, we talked, we would talk about that in church just to let them know the impact that we have on each other. So I love when you said seeing ways to continue to adapt. My thing is the more I notice, I learn about other people. I learn about myself. Yes. And so I just think that that's powerful, man. When you said success was co-creating with other people, part of success is learning about ourselves and knowing what we need. But you started with one first, you know, I'm just... This episode is going to change and save lives. I just, I just feel it. I just, I feel it because there's too much brilliance here. And I mean, I mean it, and I'm, I'm not kissing. I'm, I'm for real because these are life lessons. I just want to ask: Is there anything else you want to share with that? Because I think that what I'm about to ask you next is going to take us down another avenue. I mean, that that point about intimacy, I think, is so on point and so powerful. And intimacy is kind of a weird word in in american english right so people kind of have sexual connotations or you know it can be kind of uncomfortable you know euphemistic even but uh, i think that's really to our detriment right so i'm not i'm not big into sports but really what i see in the context of sports people love doing chants they love cheering for their team they love wearing the colors what they're part of what they're after is the intimacy of belonging and not having to question that right oh my goodness and we see we see this manifest in in many ways so sometimes when people are protesting right they know how it's supposed to look or a lot of people have the same idea and that's a that's a way of feeling connected to other people too Right. I'm not much of a dancer, but that's that's also kind of what we're talking about here, like learning to read each other so that we can move in this beautiful way. And if we kind of zoom out a little bit and look at all the stuff that we do as humans, is it music? Is it you know working? Is it trying to accomplish a goal? That's 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 often what we're after. But then the ways that we create create of trying to accomplish these things, you know, whether it be the creation of, of money or, or whatever, it's, mm-hmm. it tries to facilitate that, but then things creep in along the way and disrupt that. So really, I see DEI as our way of getting back into that. So, you know, again, not to be euphemistic, but greater intimacy with ourselves so that we can have greater intimacy with other people, more connectedness, not just to other people, but the world and the times we, we live in. Everyone, when I, when, I, when I do that pause like that, it's because I'm making sure that I'm applying this to my repertoire because I'm learning <laughs> here as well. I love learning new things and learning from beautiful people. Something you just, well, you, it's too many things you said, <laughs> okay? <laughs> you said the greater intimacy with ourselves. When I do DEI work, my friend, the one thing I notice is when people can manage themselves, whether something bad is going on or good, when people are self-aware, whether things are going great or going bad, it will help them 
to engage more with other people, even those who don't see eye to eye with them or people who don't see the way that you see. And so then when I think about what DEI can be or what it is, I definitely see it as a problem solving tool. Yes. Because if I'm working to understand, I'm just working to connect. I love how you said the intimacy of belonging. I might need to title this that. Uh, <laughs> you know, I, 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 I noticed that when people are open to others with care at the forefront, they're more patient. Mm-hmm. And so then if I'm more patient with you, that means I'm going to try to hopefully set up an environment so you can empower yourself to right. do the things that you want as we try to create this place of fairness that probably mm-hmm. wasn't there before we came. And I don't want to say that about every business and every company because it's changing. It, it, it continues to change. You know, yeah. where people are forming companies, I would say, you know, just like all laces where they're thinking way more introspectively, they're way more thoughtful about who they're working with and who they're working for. Mm-hmm. My question I want to ask you is, would you mind, which I think you kind of already started it really, yeah. but could you just share a little bit more about your philosophy or understanding or diversity, equity, and inclusion, access, and justice is. And I'm asking you not to go over each five because that's yeah. not what I'm trying to push <laughs> you like that. I'm just asking you to, you know, just like when we put all five together, mm-hmm. what is it that we, what is it that you think is what we should be looking for? Like what it means when we bring all five of these things together? So when we bring all five together successfully, I think what it means is that we get to be human. And so let me open that up a little bit more. That means I, I, I don't have to be an organizational change management consultant. I can be Enrico Imanalo. And that means not just the professional side, not just the, the educated side. It, I, I get to be the dumb side and the lazy side, the, all, the, the human parts. So uh, I don't know, like, uh, let's, let's take road rage for example if we're on the highway and i'm saying that because uh, while i am based in boston i live in oakland california now so very much flipped into a, a car culture whereas before I, w- I was walking so a difference yes. in intimacy right there right because when i'm okay. walking down the street i can make eye contact i can you know hello whatever you can give a little smile and i can say excuse me right mm-hmm. but on the on the highway there's no, uh, there's just the horn and the signals. There's no, excuse me. There's no, thank you. I can do the little wave It's true, but largely what I'm seeing is the cars and not the people. And so in our work lives, and let's be real, there's no such thing as a work life. There's your life and, and that's, that's it. But we have this idea that there's our work self and our private self, and we have these different selves. And uh, the secret is we're all the same person, just in different contexts. And yeah, that does mean that we get to apply different things. And this is where we come back to adaptability. So when we have all five of these components and they're working the way that we need them to, They are flowing the way that we need them to. They're adapting. They're not getting stuck and like creating traffic jams and things. Well, then that means that we can kind of let our guards down. That that creates a certain amount of trust, right? And a lot of the reason why we put up these barriers and walls is because we've learned that if we don't, then we get hurt. And so I don't see DEI as necessarily a way of, again, avoiding hurt, avoiding pain, but giving ourselves tools so that we can adapt to deal with it, right? So that's resilience right there. And 
the way that we become more resilient as a society is to help all of the individuals of that society to become resilient. Unfortunately, because of the way that our economy operates, there are a lot of incentives to get people to be dependent on things in an unhealthy way. So I'm, I'm not out here kind of advocating for the rugged individualist, but let's imagine that the rugged individualist or the person who is capable of being a rugged individual makes a choice within themselves to say, you know what, I'm going to take my interests, the things I love, my skills, and I'm going to apply that to living with other people. And I think part of the challenge there too is it seems like uh, there's kind of a lack of recognition of how many human beings there are, right? So if you look at our biology, at our history, mostly we're predisposed toward fairly small groups. We don't live that way anymore. We live in a bunch of overlapping groups that create these much larger groups. And that's really where things get hard to negotiate. Uh -huh. So again, that's a, that's a problem of intimacy. I don't know Joe Biden. Yeah. Maybe he's a, he's a great person. I don't know, you know, but uh, I don't know him personally. So if he makes a policy decision that uh -huh. impacts me, I, I don't really have a, a way of saying, Hey, excuse me, Mr. Biden, but uh, that's, that's really not great for me. <laughs> you know, <laughs> the, the thing that I can do is vote. And that, that takes a long time. So in uh -huh. conflict situations, the person or the party that manages the timeline controls the conflict. And in like large bureaucracies, the timeline gets stretched out indefinitely sometimes, right? And large corporations, conglomerates, they have the, the resources, you know, financial, legal, whatever, to draw that timeline out as long as they possibly can, right? So it becomes oh, nice. this a situation of attrition. And in a finite lifetime where we've got real stuff to worry about, uh, most of us can't can't stay engaged in that manner. And, you know, so to me, that that seems like, well, that's a pretty unhealthy dynamic. So, yeah, as far as my philosophy goes, it's really kind of taking these huge things that we have in play and making them accessible to real humans. And it shouldn't matter who that human is, like in any way, shape or form. Everyone, I'm just to taking out notes okay you know we we you know what enrico i think after this we might be able to go make a degree program for dei <laughs> and i say that my friend because one I'm, I'm i'm i love everything you're saying i continue to get knowledge this there's no work life there's life like right. i'm just like i'm like man all these years i, I will i would be feeling like that sometimes but i never put the words you just you gave it to me you know mm -hmm. we let our guard down which then can create trust Mm -hmm. We put the barriers up to prevent us from getting hurt. Okay. You see, like everyone, sounds sound, sound simple. To me, it's because it is, it just helps us to understand the complexities of what goes on. Yeah. Then the other thing that you were saying about as a society, we can help each other be more resilient, but there is an incentive in some ways to have our society dependent mm -hmm. on some things in an unhealthy way. And so it seems like, and this is where I want to go to here again, some, something else about DEI. It seems like the people who either remove themselves from that or who give themselves the freedom to work outside of that, they end up being sometimes, I think, more of the producers. They end up being the people who folks come to and talk to and bring ideas to because they got out of that general flow and then they did something a little bit more specific and different. Yeah. And so what I wanted to ask you, I wanted to ask you about um, 
about like how DEI maybe like, you know, just helps you, you know, um, influences how you work. But you've already said that you've already shared it. So it's not that I want to repeat that. I want to just kind of point out something and then kind of go to the almost like the next last question, really. Sure. But by saying this, when I do diversity, enrichment, inclusion, you know, workshops or whatever, even from when I did them 10, 15 years ago to now, one thing I notice is that I feel like people kind of look at DEI like it is a college degree. <laughs> yeah. I think, you know, I, I feel like they look at DEI and I'm not trying to disrespect anyone who speaks a different language because there's really no such thing as a foreign language, just a different language. Because if right. I'm there, it's not foreign, it's there. <laughs> so people who speak multiple languages or a different language than English, if you're in the U.S. and you're talking to Thomas, because mm-hmm. we do not have an official language in this country. Yeah. Um, you know, it's that the same energy that it that I put into, well, let me connect with someone because I really want to build this relationship. So I so I pay attention to the cues. Like I learned Spanish when I was in Puerto Rico because I watched what people said and what they did. And I'm like, oh, that means mm-hmm. restroom. Got it. Okay. You know, so then I knew how to say, don't say that to women. Got it. Okay. You know, it's like I see, so I let the cues then inform me of what the words meant and then soon later I was able to actually converse a little bit better because I could put these two things together same with DEI when I was like okay diversity difference equity give everybody what they need when they need it because you know can't treat everybody the same but if everyone has what they need they have equal access to it okay equity think inclusion oh okay we're we're recognizing everyone here and appreciating their contribution and making sure that we show it access everyone can get to something that they need you know justice intentionally tearing down the barriers that will prevent people from engaging before we get started. Okay, when I thought about that, I was like, oh, well, that, it's not complicated about that. You mean I just need to be thoughtful about who I interact with? You mean I just need to be able to challenge myself mm-hmm. in every interaction? I just need to recognize that everything that I've done is not the only way to do it. And even the rules that I follow are not the greatest of rules around the world and other people do things differently. And then I thought, what's so hard about that? Mm-hmm. Then I went because when you wanted to study your field and be successful, you did what you needed to do to figure that out. Right. You see, like, oh, I studied harder. I did that. I, I joined the study group. I joined the society. And when I got this job, I, I went and asked questions for help. I, so then I go, so then why does DEIJA seem so complicated? They go, well, what do you mean? I was like, it's the same thing, actually. Yeah. You know what? Only this time it's a person that you're doing it with or it's a community that you're doing it with. Or, you know, like it's a couple of people and it's not about you getting paid. It's not about the job. It's about the relationship. Mm-hmm. So if you know how to apologize when you're wrong, like you said, if you know how to adapt when things aren't going your way, if you know how to be quiet sometimes and just listen yeah, and just let people share. Matter of fact, you only have to share your opinion. I'm like, <laughs> we can get further along a lot faster. Here's a question I want to ask you is. Can you share any insight that you have about how DEI has helped you improve in your discipline or help you to improve in your current position? Mm-hmm. And, re- and I just want to keep, I want to leave it. It's not that, like you said, there's no such thing as work life. It's life. So I don't want to say, don't talk about anything else. I just want to ask that specifically because I kind of would like for people to hear some of this genius that you're about to share with us. And I really do think you're going to say it in a way that we can apply it. So that's my question. DEI has helped you improve in your discipline or help you improve in your position? Yeah. So I guess I'll start a little bit further out. So one of the basic principles that I really internalized in learning about conflict resolution and conflict management is that the power of 
questions is so incredible, right? And more than that, it's curiosity that helps us to get out of that combative mode. So one of the things that's really helped uh, how DEI has helped me in my, my professional life, in my broader life, is I get to be more curious about different things. So when I'm working with clients, right, I, I'm not a banker, I'm not a, you know, the, whatever industry I'm working in. So I, I'm in a position where I can also be learning. I find that I, I run into trouble when it gets into my head that, oh, I'm an expert and I know stuff, right? And then I start making recommendations based oh. on my expert knowledge. And, you know, then people are saying like, that sounds great, but my situation is X, Y, Z. You talked about ABC. And not only is that just not a great way to engage with clients, that also makes me look like an idiot, <laughs> which is not, <laughs> not great, right? So uh, humility uh, is the piece that I'm getting at, really, right? And yeah, I love what you're saying about people kind of treat DEI as another college degree or even another language, right? So sometimes we get people who are not so far along in their racial equity development, and really they're stuck at this level of, well, what are the right things to say? It's like, okay, so the right things to say are nice. And, you know, by the way, who's deciding what's right and what's wrong, but let's maybe look at why people would like you to say things in a certain way or not. Right. And if we get even more curious, like, well, what is the history of that? What were the human experiences that led people to this way of thinking? And, you know, people do this all the time. And, you know, most of what our education exists for is to assist and support people in developing their ability to problem solve. It's just in focused in different areas. Right. But uh, one, say, for example, uh, what we're seeing a lot now in organizational change is people applying lessons from ecology and from systems thinking. And that, yes, that's sir. that's some people are thinking, oh, that's so innovative, blah, blah, blah. Like, well, is it really? I mean, I guess. <laughs> so what you're saying is taking some stuff that we learned and applying it to other situations is innovative. Like that's, that's the whole point. <laughs> I'm with you, brother. I'm with you. <laughs> but I mean, we do see this breakdown, right? So uh, people are not encouraged to be curious. And this starts very young. Wow. We've all encountered the, the younger parent with the very small child, you know, usually kind of haggard looking, pretty frazzled. And the kid is asking a million questions, right? Why, 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 why? And the parent, you know, you usually see they've had to answer a million why questions or how questions, and they're anticipating answering a million more. But what we know is that when parents entertain their children in this way, then that curiosity doesn't get crushed. That carries forward, right? And if you are creating human beings that are not curious, well, then again, that doesn't take us to that whole homo sapiens thing. And that doesn't lead to professionals who are interested in learning beyond their realm of knowledge, which, you know, legitimately many, much of the time they had to really fight for. Learning's not easy. And also on that note, one of the things that I learned as a teacher was nobody sits down and teaches us how to learn. 
we throw people into a situation and say, okay, learn. That's ridiculous. Uh, I, of course, things have come a long way since I was small, but that is absurd, right? That, that's problem number one. If we're not teaching people how to learn, then how can they take it upon themselves to do that, right? So there's a lot of admiration for Renaissance thinkers, autodidacts, like people who have taught themselves. But, you know, in some sense, they kind of evaded or escaped, you know, the, the many opportunities that probably existed in their lives where their curiosity could have been snuffed out. And I think that's it's so important for us to maintain, uh, not only at the, the one end of beginning our lives, but towards the end of our lives, too. I mean, how many older people have you encountered who kind of got stuck? And then as technology progresses, as different ideas kind of take root in society, that outside world becomes a harder and harder place for them to exist in fully. And that's, that's going to be a huge, huge issue for us very, very soon. My parents' generation, the baby boomers, our cities, our, our society, nothing is set up for them, right? The, the infrastructure for the aging population. Yes, I know that the baby boomers kind of created the world that we lived in, but they didn't create it for themselves as elderly people. Uh, they did not. So Boston, for example, a lot of brick sidewalks, a lot of brickwork, a lot of uneven paving surfaces, a lot of stairs. These are not fantastic for people who have mobility issues. Mm-hmm. Just for one, right? What you just said was just as a sobering thought. It just made me just kind of just, you know, while I was excited, it just calmed me down because it just made me think about curiosity and creativity, how they're tied together. (laughs) Yeah. Curiosity and artistry, how they're tied together. And when I will work with young people, for real, every time I work with a young group, young group is any age from three to 25. I agree. Okay. And I always ask this question, how many of you consider yourself artists? And I noticed that when I do it with a 25, 21, 25, 17 to 25, it's hardly 98% of them will not raise their hands or identify. But when I'm talking to 14 to 16, 10 to 12, 8 to 10, 4 to 8, you know, it's almost 100%, or it is 100%. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I and and it and it and then the reason why it is sobering is because when you mentioned the elders, it makes me think about an indigenous community and in our culture. One is, and I talk I've been talking about this lately just because I've recently learned it. But I learned it from someone who told me that this is what we should do. I just didn't realize that I was raised doing it. Mm-hmm. That when you're that when babies come into the world, put them with the grandparents. Mm-hmm. The reason why I say curiosity, creativity, I remember teaching my grandmother how to read. Wow. But when you really? have elders with babies it's almost like they can take the new technology better because probably that kid that baby is going to be patient mm-hmm. yeah and that's what i was my grandma i was sitting there like no this is the word and she didn't get irritated with me and i and i remember we were there for a long time but mm-hmm. it would but it but it didn't feel a long time mm-hmm. you see it was just like okay this is what we do this is what we do there was no judgment there was no ah Right. How do you not understand? It was more like, okay, this is what it is. And then she turned around and did the same thing with me when teaching me how to cook, mm-hmm. teach me how to clean, teach me how to take care of a home, mm-hmm. teach me how to take care of my clothes, teach me all of that. She would just patient with me. No, this is what you do. No, that's not going to work. And so I had no fear of messing up, but I definitely had a desire to get it right. 
Yeah. I just always want to get it right. I was like, okay, I got to get it right. Why? Because I don't want her to repeat it. <laughs> yeah. You see, it wasn't, I don't want to repeat it. I'm like, I don't want to repeat it. I don't want her to put that energy. She's always doing it. And so I, I just, and, and it's, it's something that kind of gets me emotional because it, it reminds me of when we don't have patience with each other. Yeah. We contribute to the loss of humanity. Yes. When we don't, when we're not curious about each other, we contribute to the loss of the relationship being cut short. When we're not um, open with each other, we contribute to people building walls around themselves to deal with us. I didn't say we're responsible. I said we contribute. And what you just said just made me just think about that. And then DEI just makes me, based on what you just said, take more responsibility with how I engage with people and take more, take the responsibility, which means I'm accountable to you too. What was the impact? And that's what was my intent. What was the impact? Then that's what I have to deal with. Right. You yeah. know, and and just I just want to just thank you for that. But it was sober. And that's why I just got quiet. Cause anytime I think about my elders who are my ancestors, I yeah. just get, you know, I, I get really humble because I still feel like everything that I do in life that's good, I learn from my grandmom and grandfather. I feel and that. my mom and dad. And everything I do that's conflicted, I learned in education. I'm just being <laughs> real with you. I'm just being real, you know, because they weren't educated. They were not, they were educated by life. They weren't formally educated. So I learned how to eat off the land. I learned how to talk to people. I learned how to respect them. I learned how I felt because they were like, what's wrong? You upset right now? Mm -hmm. Let's talk about it. It wasn't provoking. Get over it. It was like, what's wrong, baby? Oh, you mad? Mm -hmm. If they disciplined me in a way that I didn't like, they would, they wouldn't go, we want to hurt you. They would go, okay, how do you feel? And then they would go, okay. And then they would promise. They would say, we're not going to do that again. Wow. And then they wouldn't do it. Even if I messed up, my grandma wouldn't, she wouldn't like hit me again. Yeah. Like, I told you I wasn't going to do that. And she would just kind of, her, her, her emotions would make me feel a certain way. And then I wouldn't do it again. I'd just be like, she's disappointed in me. Oh, right. God. That was worse than a fight. It was oh, just like, yeah. you know, a discipline. It's like, oh, you're disappointed in me. And because I care what you think and feel. Mm-hmm. I don't want to mess up. Can you imagine if you had a relation, not saying that I'm not asking this to you. I'm asking this to everyone listening. Can you imagine if your supervisor had that same feeling towards you yeah. at work and you still got everything done? Can you imagine if you felt that way towards your supervisor? Like, man, I disappointed. Oh, man. You would never have to use discipline. You, would, right. you wouldn't have to do it because you would discipline yourself. And you would get it together. And the person would see you doing it and go, I don't need to say anything to them to beat themselves up. And I could, and I would watch my grandma watch me sometimes I was growing up. She would go, I don't need to say anything to him. He's whooping himself. <laughs> like she she would just look, you know, and I'd be walking like that. And she would tell me, hold your head up. And then I, and then she'd be like, you've been sad too long. <laughs> you see, she wouldn't yeah. even let me be sad. She'd be like, hold your head up. Uh-uh, no. So I just want to say that because I feel the spirit of care and love is what made me get yes. a little emotional and quiet down with what you were saying. So that's why I just want to say thank you for taking me there. Mm-hmm. And um, whether it was intentional or not, your words are speaking um, grace to me. And it's just causing me to just be chilling, a little choked up, just thinking about my elder. So I'll that. ask this. No, I love that you're you. sharing that. Yeah. And uh, yeah. as you were kind of talking that the, the, the love and care piece, mm-hmm. uh, it's really what's missing from our educational systems, right? Especially the public schooling system. I mean, mm-hmm. it's it's very hard to be loving and caring when you have fewer and fewer resources, when your funding is tied up in standardized test scores, when your students, parents expect you to be a social worker, a police officer, uh, a million other things, surrogate parent. 
Mm-hmm. And the other part that's curious about our educational system, as we know, as you just said, that humans, they, when they learn from each other, they learn from those that they're, they're closest to. They're not all the same age. They're at different stages of life. If you've ever had to work with a room full of 14-year-olds, that is a chaotic place. Yes, exactly. And there's so much frustration in that room of 14-year-olds because they're all yes. stuck on the same stuff and they're all yes. eating off each other, amplifying, and it's like, whoa, we gotta, we gotta figure this out. Right? But if you see the 14-year-old with their younger sibling, that patience, that care comes back in. It's hard to have patience and care for the person that's confronted with the same challenges as yourself. We're both stuck. I see that. There's nothing we can do, right? There's Uh a certain amount of helplessness that comes in. Uh And kind of what's helped my thinking along these lines is in joining all ACEs, we have some values, right, that I've really been just internalizing and internalizing and internalizing. And the most powerful ones to me are collective care and practice what you preach, right? So collective care means, it doesn't mean like a spoon feeding other people. It means creating space for others to get what they need, right? So often when we're thinking about needs, we're thinking about our own needs, but often in conflict situations, it's because we're only thinking about our own needs and not other people's needs that we get stuck, right? So if we're thinking about other people's needs first, Then we're thinking about what it is that I can offer, how I can support, and how I can be, you know, getting my needs met as well. Then that creates a very different dynamic for a work team. When we're engaging with clients in this way too, that also creates a very different dynamic. So of course, another one of our values, client care has to come in here. So client care is this idea, and if we're not working with clients, the idea is community care, but it's... Yes, creating space for people to get what they need, but not in a way that it's extracting from you. And, you know, in our previous conversations, uh, you know, you've talked about, yeah, sometimes things can be transactional. That's good. Sometimes, you you know, trying to gain power is good. Sometimes Mm -hmm. being extractive is also necessary. It's just when it becomes a kind of habitual, automatic, unthinking thing, like the unnuanced thing, that extraction becomes a a, a huge problem. And if we're trying to think of like kind of parallels here, well, extraction is the principle behind strip mining, right? They don't care about the trees. They don't Mm -hmm. care about any of the other stuff. They're just focused on this one element that they're pulling out of the ground. And what happens? Mm -hmm. You get erosion, you get landslides, you get all kinds of horrible after effects, none of which were intended. And so by being more thoughtful about that, then again, we can kind of predict what the consequences are, how we'll need to adapt, how we can account for those things. Mm -hmm. But if we're only looking at things through a narrow slice, so we're back to the the room full of 14-year-olds again. Yep, yep. Then our opportunities are limited as well. Enrico, your philosophy is contagious. And I mean that in a great way. I want to continue, I want to continue to catch it. I want to continue to use it, be exposed to it. Oh, your brilliance is thank you, you know, and your brilliance is there. And uh and thank you for sharing that because your brilliance is tied into what you've learned, how you've learned, how you grew up, where you've been, and also who you've been able to help and who you've been able to elevate. And so at least that's my opinion. And so my final question, you know, um, because I've had a great time talking with you is really just, is there anything 
that I neglected to ask you, and I do apologize, that you would like to share just about what we've been talking about. And before you answer that, I'll say, everyone, this is what we are. We're on this Hardwood podcast where we talk about the intersections of DEI, diversity, equity, and inclusion. Because we're based at the Yale School of the Environment, we do talk about the environment some, but because we are all from different environments, we talk about ourselves. And so um, I just feel like and you've done all of that, my friend. You've done all of that environment, the world, yourself, everything. So I won't be quiet and just ask, is there anything else that you'd like to share based on how we've talked, based on what Hartwood is that I, you know, uh, unfortunately didn't ask? Well, maybe this is not exactly something that you didn't ask, but definitely something that I want to share. Since becoming a DEI practitioner, really internalizing the things that I'm learning from the field and from the people that I interact with, I've never felt so connected to other people, so grounded in myself, and so sure of the things that I'm doing. You know, and, and I don't think that's in a, a, an arrogant way, an overconfident way. It's just yes. that I've created more space to be considerate of myself, of other people, of my impact. And in doing so, and to be honest, this, this slows things down sometimes. But I don't, I don't see that as a bad thing at all, mm-hmm. but kind of just creating more space to be thoughtful. It makes me feel less, less frantic, less like I'm jumping from fire to fire and more of kind of, uh, you know, it's a far more pleasurable experience. I can, I can take the time to think about what I want where I want to go, I can change my mind. And it's not a crisis of identity or, or anything like that. Yes. And, you know, uh, my personal relationships have benefited so much from it. I know that I'm a better partner. I am. Uh, my partner is from India. So she is from a different culture. And so, you know, in just even kind of making sure that I don't have a real separation between the different parts of my life. I'm mm-hmm. able to say, oh, yeah, yeah, I, I was with somebody at work the other day who was talking about a similar situation that I'm seeing play out with now. And mm-hmm. I'm able to apply that. And so part of that, uh, that DEI and being connected thing is I'm also better about following up with people and saying, hey, you know what, I, I learned this lesson from you the other day, and I applied <laughs> it in this situation. And then yes. that sparks something, you know. And of course, uh, things like our friendship, like we spent actually a fair amount of time together and I'm loving every second of it. So, I mean, thank you. You're part of uh, my journey as well. <laughs> oh, man. Well, for, well, likewise, back to you. And I don't want to tell you how much time we've been we've been talking. I'm not even going to say <laughs> it. I, I don't even want to tell you. I can't believe because I, I didn't I, I didn't lose track. I found myself in the conversation. And um, and I and I would rather do that than do, you know, um, you know, care about time and that. And so I appreciate that. We did have a great conversation. People will get a lot out of this. And I got a lot um, out of there's so many quotables. It's so so many. It's, it's, it's too many, you know, from from you. And so I want to thank you for gracing Hartwood, the podcast. I want to thank you for gracing Yale School of the Environment, you know, coming and being a part of us and being based out of Boston, but, you know, being in Oakland, you know, our school touches both, you know, Massachusetts, you know, California, you know, I'm yeah. in, in the Bay Area. So I just want to thank you for for being a part of uh, of our, our season four. And also thank you also for being a part of my life. And um, I hope that uh, people who listen to this, you will get um, you, you will get not just information, but you will get uh, wisdom and you would also get something that helps you to feel uh, like you do belong and like you 
not only matter and not only exist, but you have something to offer mm. because we all have something to give each other. And so, um, you know, like I said, thank you for, you know, taking, taking our podcast to another level, my friend. Thank you for thank teaching you for having me. me. Yes. Sir. Thank you. And thank you. And thank you for teaching me today. And um, I appreciate you, everyone. This is our friend Enrico E. Manalo with All Laces Incorporated. Please check them out. OK, they are making great work. I'm, I'm actually working with them, too, on, on you know, on some things. So uh, they've already impacted me in the things that I'm doing. So um, I'm just fortunate that I can call him friend. So everyone tune in. Thanks again. And we'll see you next time on the next Hardwood episode. Before we go, Enrico, how can people find you? Oh, yeah. So uh, our social media pages were at all aces underscore INC on Twitter. If you'd like to find us on LinkedIn, we definitely have a page there as well. If you type into uh, LinkedIn, all aces, a plumbing company might come up. But if you scroll down a little bit, then you will find us. Uh, and our website, of course, is all aces, Inc. That's all one word dot com. And if you'd like to join our online learning community, that's intentionallyact.com. Thank you so much, everyone. I want you to look up my friend, uh, people who are also interested in, you know, different services, especially around DEI. Please look up um, all, all laces. They have way more uh, to offer uh, than you can imagine. And until next time, everyone, take care. Peace. Thank you for tuning in. And I'm your host, Dr. Thomas Richard Easley. We never want to close out our episodes without thanking our sponsors, the Yale School of the Environment, and also Mind Heart for Diversity, LLC. Thank you again, everyone, for tuning in.